Section seven of the Ingoldsby Legends, first series. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Ingoldsby Legends, first series, by Richard Harris Barham. Section seven. Within an hour, all Canterbury was in commotion. A friar had been murdered. Two friars. Ten. Twenty. A whole convent had been assaulted, sacked, burnt. All the monks had been killed and all the nuns had been kissed murder fire sacrilege never was city in such an uproar from st george's gate to st dunstan's suburb from the don john to the borough of staplegate all was noise and hubbub where was it when was it how was it the mare caught up his chain the aldermen donned their furred gowns the town clerk put on his spectacles. Who was he? What was he? Where was he? He should be hanged. He should be burned. He should be broiled. He should be fried. He should be scraped to death with red-hot oyster-shells. Who was he? What was his name? The abbot's apparitor drew forth his roll and read aloud, Sir Robert de Sherland, Knight Banneret, Baron of Sherland and Minster, and Lord of Sheppey. The mayor put his chain in his pocket. The aldermen took off their gowns. The town clerk put his pen behind his ear. It was a county business altogether. The sheriff had better call out the posse comitatus. While saints and sinners were thus leaguing against him, the Baron de Sherland was quietly eating his breakfast. He had passed a tranquil night, undisturbed by dreams of cowl or capuchin, nor was his appetite more affected than his conscience. On the contrary, he sat rather longer over his meal than usual. Luncheon time came, and he was ready as ever for his oysters. But scarcely had Dame Martin opened his first half-dozen, when the warder's horn was heard from the barbican, who the devil's that said sir robert i'm not at home periwinkle i hate to be disturbed at meals and i won't be home to anybody and please your lordship answered the seneschal paul prior hath given notice that there is a body another body roared the baron am i to be everlastingly plagued with bodies no time allowed me to swallow a morsel throw it into the moat so please you my lord it is a body of horse and and paul says there is a still larger body of foot behind it and he thinks my lord that is he does not know but he thinks and we all think my lord that they are coming to to besiege the castle besiege the castle who what what for paul says my lord that he can see the banner of St. Austin, and the bleeding heart of Hamo de Crebacour, the abbot's chief vassal, and there is John de Northwood, the sheriff, with his red cross engrailed, and Haver, and Leybourne, and heaven knows how many more, and they are all coming on as fast as ever they can. Periwinkle, said the baron, up with the drawbridge, down with the portcullis bring me a cup of canary and my nightcap i won't be bothered with them 
I shall go to bed. To bed, my lord, cried Periwinkle, with a look that seemed to say, he's crazy. At this moment the shrill tones of a trumpet were heard to sound thrice from the champagne. It was the signal for parley. The baron changed his mind. Instead of going to bed, he went to the ramparts. Well, rapscallions, and what now? said the baron. A herald, two pursivants, and a trumpeter occupied the foreground of the scene. Behind them, some three hundred paces off, upon a rising ground, was drawn up in battle array the main body of the ecclesiastical forces. Hear you, Robert of Sherland, knight, baron of Sherland and Minster, and lord of Sheppey, and know all men by these presents that I do hereby attach you, the said Robert, of murder and sacrilege, now or of late, done and committed by you, the said Robert, contrary to the peace of our sovereign lord, the king, his crown and dignity, and I do hereby require and charge you, the said Robert, to forthwith surrender and give up your own proper person, together with the castle of Shoreland, aforesaid, in order that the same may be duly dealt with according to law. And here standeth John de Northwood, Esquire, good man and true, Sheriff of this His Majesty's most loyal county of Kent, to enforce the same, if need be, with his posse comitatus. His what? said the Baron. His posse comitatus, and— Go to Bath, said the Baron. A defiance so contemptuous roused the ire of the adverse commanders. A volley of missiles rattled against the Baron's ears. Nightcaps avail little against contusions. He left the walls and returned to the great hall. Let them pelt away, quoth the Baron. There are no windows to break, and they can't get in. So he took his afternoon nap, and the siege went on. Towards evening his lordship awoke, and grew tired of the din. Guy Pearson, too, had got a black eye from a brickbat, and the assailants were clambering over the outer wall. So the baron called for his Sunday hauberk of Milan steel, and his great two-handed sword with the terrible name. It was the fashion in feudal times to give names to swords. King Arthur's was christened Excalibur. The baron called his Tickle Toby, and whenever he took it in hand it was no joke. Up with the portcullis, down with the bridge, said Sir Robert, and out he sallied, followed by the elite of his retainers. Then there was a pretty to-do. Heads flew one way, arms and legs another. Round went Tickle Toby, and wherever it alighted, down came horse and man. The baron excelled himself that day. All that he had done in Palestine faded in the comparison. He had fought for fun there, but now it was for life and lands. Away went John de Northwood, away went William of Haver, and Roger of Leybourne. Hamo de Crepicor, with the church vassals and the banner of St. Austin, had been gone some time. The siege was raised, and the Lord of Sheppey was left alone in his glory. 
but brave as the baron undoubtedly was and total as had been the defeat of his enemies it cannot be supposed that la staccata would be allowed to carry it away thus it has before been hinted that abbot anselm had written to the pope and boniface the eighth piqued himself on his punctuality as a correspondent in all matters connected with church discipline he sent back an answer by return of post and by it all christian people were strictly enjoined to aid in exterminating the offender on pain of the greater excommunication in this world and a million of years of purgatory in the next but then again boniface the eighth was rather at a discount in england just then he had affronted longshanks as the loyal lieges had nicknamed their monarch and longshanks had been rather sharp upon the clergy in consequence if the baron de sherland could but get the king's pardon for what in his cooler moments he admitted to be a peccadillo he might sniff at the pope and bid him do his devilmost fortune who as the poet says delights to favour the bold stood his friend on this occasion edward had been for some time collecting a large force on the coast of kent to carry on his french wars for the recovery of guienne he was expected shortly to review it in person but then the troops lay principally in cantonments about the mouth of the thames and his majesty was to come down by water what was to be done the royal barge was in sight and john de northwood and hamo de crevecor had broken up all the boats to boil their camp kettles a truly great mind is never without resources bring me my boots said the baron they brought him his boots and his dapple grey steed along with them such a courser all blood and bone short-backed broad-chested and but that he was a little eunecked faultless in form and figure the baron sprang upon his back and dashed at once into the river the barge which carried edward longshanks and his fortunes had by this time nearly reached the nore the stream was broad and the current strong but sir robert and his steed were almost as broad and a great deal stronger after breasting the tide gallantly for a couple of miles the knight was near enough to hail the steersman what have we got here said the king it's a mermaid said one it's a grampus said another it's the devil said a third but they were all wrong it was only robert de sherland gramercy said the king that fellow was never born to be drowned it has been said before that the baron had fought in the holy wars in fact he had accompanied longshanks when only heir apparent in his expedition twenty-five years before although his name is unaccountably omitted by sir harris nicholas in his list of crusaders he had been present at accra when amarand of joppa stabbed the prince with a poisoned dagger and had lent princess eleanor his own toothbrush after she had sucked out the venom from the wound he had slain certain saracens contented himself with his own plunder 
and never dunned the commissariat for arrears of pay of course he ranked high in edward's good graces and had received the honour of knighthood at his hands on the field of battle in one so circumstanced it cannot be supposed that such a trifle as the killing of a frowsy friar would be much resented even had he not taken so bold a measure to obtain his pardon his petition was granted of course as soon as asked and so it would have been had the indictment drawn up by the canterbury town clerk viz that he the said robert de shoreland etc had then and there with several to wit one thousand pairs of boots given sundry to wit two thousand kicks and therewith and thereby killed diverse to wit ten thousand austin friars been true to the letter thrice did the gallant grey circumnavigate the barge while robert de winchelsea the chancellor and archbishop to boot was making out albeit with great reluctance the royal pardon the interval was sufficiently long to enable his majesty who gracious as he was had always an eye to business just to hint that the gratitude he felt towards the baron was not unmixed with a lively sense of services to come and that if life were now spared him common decency must oblige him to make himself useful before the archbishop who had scalded his fingers with the wax in affixing the great seal had time to take them out of his mouth all was settled and the baron de shurland had pledged himself to be forthwith in readiness cum suisse to accompany his liege lord to guienne with the royal pardon secured in his vest boldly did his lordship turn again to the shore and as boldly did his courser oppose his breadth of chest to the stream it was a work of no common difficulty or danger a steed of less metal and bone had long since sunk in the effort as it was the baron's boots were full of water and grey dolphins chamfron more than once dipped beneath the wave the convulsive snorts of the noble animal showed his distress each instant they became more loud and frequent when his hoof touched the strand and the horse and his rider stood once again in safety on the shore rapidly dismounting the baron was loosening the girths of his demi-peak to give the panting animal breath when he was aware of as ugly an old woman as he had ever clapped eyes upon peeping at him under the horse's belly make much of your steed robert shurland make much of your steed cried the hag shaking at him her long and bony finger groom to the hide and corn to the manger he has saved your life robert shurland for the nonce but he shall yet be the means of your losing it for all that the baron started what's that you say you old faggot he ran round by his horse's tail the woman was gone the baron paused his great soul was not to be shaken by trifles he looked around him and solemnly ejaculated the word humbug then slinging the bridle across his arm walked slowly on in the direction 
of the castle. The appearance, and still more the disappearance of the crone, had, however, made an impression. Every step he took he became more thoughtful. T'would be deuced provoking, though, if he should break my neck after all. He turned and gazed at Dolphin, with the scrutinizing eye of a veterinary surgeon. I'll be shot if he is not groggy, said the baron. With his lordship, like another great commander, wants to be in doubt, was wants to be resolved. It would never do to go to the wars on a rickety prad. He dropped the rein, drew forth Tickle Toby, and, as the enfranchised dolphin, good easy horse, stretched out his ewe neck to the herbage, struck off his head at a single blow. There, you lying old beldam, said the baron. Now take him away to the knackers. Three years were come and gone. King Edward's French wars were over. Both parties, having fought till they came to a standstill, shook hands, and the quarrel, as usual, was patched up by a royal marriage. This happy event gave his majesty leisure to turn his attention to Scotland, where things, through the intervention of William Wallace, were looking rather queerish. As his reconciliation with Philip now allowed of his fighting the Scotch in peace and quietness, the monarch lost no time in marching his long legs across the border, and the short ones of the baron followed him, of course. At Falkirk, Tickle Toby was in great request, and in the year following, we find a contemporary poet hinting at his master's prowess under the walls of Kerlaverock. Avec ou fou a le bon Robert de Shoreland, qui con se voit sur le cheval, ne semble homme que sommeil. A quatrain which Mr. Simpkinson translates, With them was marching the good Robert de Shoreland, who when seated on horseback, does not resemble a man asleep. So thoroughly awake indeed does he seem to have proved himself, that the bard subsequently exclaims in an ecstasy of admiration, Si je estois un pousolette, je lis donnerai cœur et corps, tante de lui bon le record. If I were a young maiden, I would give my heart and person, so great is his fame. Fortunately, the poet was a tough old monk of Exeter, since such a present to a nobleman, now in his grand climacteric, would hardly have been worth the carriage. With the reduction of this stronghold of the Maxwells seemed to have concluded the baron's military services, as on the very first day of the fourteenth century we find him once more landed on his native shore, and marching with such of his retainers as the wars had left him, towards the hospitable shelter of Sherland Castle. It was then, upon that very beach, some hundred yards distant from high-water mark, that his eye fell upon something like an ugly old woman in a red cloak. She was seated on what seemed to be a large stone, in an interesting attitude, with her elbows resting upon her knees, and her chin upon her thumbs. The baron started, 
the remembrance of his interview with a similar personage in the same place some three years since flashed upon his recollection he rushed towards the spot but the form was gone nothing remained but the seat it had appeared to occupy this on examination turned out to be no stone but the whitened skull of a dead horse a tender remembrance of the deceased grey dolphin shot a momentary pang into the baron's bosom he drew the back of his hand across his face the thought of the hag's prediction in an instant rose and banished all softer emotions in utter contempt of his own weakness yet with a tremor that deprived his redoubtable kick of half its wonted force he spurned the relic with his foot one word alone issued from his lips elucidatory of what was passing in his mind it long remained imprinted on the memory of his faithful followers that word was gammon the skull bounded across the beach till it reached the very margin of the stream one instant more and it would be engulfed forever at that moment a loud ha 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 was distinctly heard by the whole train to issue from its bleached and toothless jaws it sank beneath the flood in a horse laugh meanwhile sir robert de shurland felt an odd sort of sensation in his right foot his boots had suffered in the wars great pains had been taken for their preservation they had been sold and healed more than once had they been galoshed their owner might have defied fate well has it been said that there is no such thing as a trifle a nobleman's life depended upon a question of ninepence the baron marched on the uneasiness in his foot increased he plucked off his boot a horse's tooth was sticking in his great toe the result may be anticipated lame as he was his lordship with characteristic decision would hobble on to shurland his walk increased the inflammation a flagon of aquavitae did not mend matters he was in a high fever he took to his bed next morning the toe presented the appearance of a bedfordshire carrot by dinner-time it had deepened to beetroot and when bargrave the leech at last sliced it off the gangrene was too confirmed to admit of remedy dame martin thought it high time to send for miss margaret who ever since her mother's death had been living with her maternal aunt the abbess in the ursuline convent at greenwich the young lady came and with her came one master ingoldsby her cousin german by the mother's side but the baron was too far gone in the dead thraw to recognize either he died as he lived unconquered and unconquerable his last words were tell the old hag she may go to whither remains a secret he expired without fully articulating the place of her destination but who and what was the crone who prophesied the catastrophe ay that is the mystery of this wonderful history some say it was dame fothergill 
the late confessor's mamma others st bridget herself others thought it was nobody at all but only a phantom conjured up by conscience as we do not know we decline giving an opinion and what became of the clerk of chatham mr simpkinson avers that he lived to a good old age and was at last hanged by jack cade with his inkhorn about his neck for setting boys copies in support of this he adduces his name emmanuel and refers to the historian shakespeare mr peters on the contrary considers this to be what he calls one of mr simpkinson's anacreonisms inasmuch as at the introduction of mr cade's reform measure the clerk if alive would have been hard upon two hundred years old the probability is that the unfortunate alluded to was his great-grandson margaret sherland in due course became margaret ingoldsby her portrait still hangs in the gallery at tappington the features are handsome but shrewish betraying as it were a touch of the old baron's temperament but we never could learn that she actually kicked her husband she brought him a very pretty fortune in chains ouches and saracen earrings the barony being a male fief reverted to the crown in the abbey church at minster may yet be seen the tomb of a recumbent warrior clad in the chain mail of the thirteenth century footnote subsequent to the first appearance of the foregoing narrative the tomb alluded to has been opened during the course of certain repairs which the church has undergone mr simpkinson who was present at the exhumation of the body within and has enriched his collection with three of its grinders says the bones of one of the great toes were wanting he speaks in terms of great admiration at the thickness of the skull and is of opinion that the skeleton is that of a great patriot much addicted to lundy foot and footnote his hands are clasped in prayer his legs crossed in that position so prized by templars in ancient and tailors in modern days bespeak him a soldier of the faith in palestine close behind his dexter calf lies sculptured in bold relief a horse's head and a respectable elderly lady as she shows the monument fails not to read her auditors a fine moral lesson on the sin of ingratitude or to claim a sympathizing tear to the memory of poor grey dolphin End of section seven.